Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 8th of September 2020. Mark Penders across the pond stateside, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. On the central bank calendar this week, we have the European Central Bank with its policy announcement on Thursday, as usual. That looked like being something of a non-issue a short while ago. And while expectations are still generally for no change, there has recently been some at least creeping speculation that the central bank might ease a little further. On the positive side for the bank is the relative stability and the, the smooth workings of financial markets in no way small in no small way due to the lashings of liquidity being provided by the asset purchase program and its temporary boost through December, the pandemic emergency purchase program, now the main tool in the quantitative easing policy box and a range of refinancing operations. However, less optimistically, the economic recovery is slowing. Headline inflation is below zero for the first time since May 2016. And worse, the narrow core uh, measure of prices is at a record low of just 0.4%. Add to that a significant upswing in new COVID-19 cases, a euro that's up almost 10% against the dollar since March, and Hungary's apparent reluctance to sign off on the EU Commission's proposed coronavirus rescue programme, and it's probably safe to assume that at least some governing council members will want to lean in direction of additional accommodation. Also Thursday, we'll get the new economic forecast from the ECB as well, so any negative revisions here may in fact make it quite difficult for the central bank not to do something anyway. I think apart from just you know, the general statements, um, at this stage, I think it's got to be said it is most likely that the central bank won't do anything. But um, in particular, do keep uh, an eye on um, what uh, President Lagarde has to say. Typically speaking, the ECB is amongst those central banks who, by and large, try not to mention the exchange rate at all. But since we've seen this very sharp appreciation by the euro against the dollar, albeit really it's got to be said that's more to do, I think, with dollar weakness than it is euro strength. The ECB's chief economist, uh, Philip Lane, came out last week and pointed out very openly that the exchange rate does matter to monetary policy. Now, if that view is reiterated by a President Lagarde in her press conference after the announcement on Thursday, then that, I think, certainly could have some implications for the euro. It is still high against the dollar. By the looks of it, the market's pretty long euros anyway. So say anything which suggests the central bank isn't happy with current levels uh, could well see some pre selling pressure coming through. Jeremy? Yeah. Um, if the ECB does surprise and does do something, um, what would it do? I think there's, I said there's not a great deal of choice. I suppose they've got quite a lot in their policy box at the moment. Um, but it's quite clear there's a big resistance now, I think, to cutting interest rates any further. I think certainly amongst the more hawkish council members, the idea of low interest rates is just simply you know, a no-no. And indeed, it does seem that from what the chief economist, who, who's responsible for putting together the, the proposals to the governing council as to what they might or might not do, it seems that he's not particularly a great believer in lower interest rates anyway. So it really then comes down to you know, a good old question of, of quantitative easing. Now, at this stage, it seems as if the, the so-called the old long-standing asset purchase program, the one that's currently running at 20 billion euros a month, plus this, this temporary envelope, as they call it, of 120 billion euros through the end of this year, that seems to be fairly well fixed, although they certainly could come out and increase monthly purchases. But by and large, I mentioned in the intro, it, it seems that the, the main focus at the moment is uh, the PEP 
the uh, the emergency purchase program they brought in specifically to deal with uh, the COVID worries. Now that was increased fairly sharply up to 1.35 trillion back in June, and that was, as I say, a pretty large increase of what 600 billion euros at the time, which is at the upper end of market expectations. So I don't think they'll be keen to do that, but it does seem they're most happy with the way the PEP's working. So if they were to do anything, it's probably going to come to an increase in the PEP. Um, what else can we say encouraging? I suppose this is an update from my side and sort of economic numbers. I guess say, they've got to be pretty happy with the function of financial markets at the moment. They don't have worries about a big widening in spreads within the eurozone with the likes of say, Italy or um, Greek bonds or Spanish bonds widening their yields versus uh, the, the, the core countries like crucially Germany. So by and large, I think you know the financial markets appear to be operating quite well, but they do appear to be you know, at least some worries, I think, about where the economy is going. Um, we talked in uh, previous weeks that there's been probably, if anything, a sharper than expected recovery coming through, specifically in consumer demand, to a lesser extent in industrial output. But nonetheless, um, I think you know, the latest figures, we've seen retail sales declining, what, 1.3% on the month in July. That is their first decline since April. And within that, something which I think will raise a few alarm bells, uh, Germany saw its second consecutive drop. So we've seen falls in now in both June and July. So it's uh, it's a potential negative there. It may mean that the bounce back in uh, household consumption has pretty well run its course. And it's a question now, can it be sustained if, I think as everyone sort of expects, we start to see the jobless figures deteriorating and perhaps uh, you know, rising quite sharply over coming months. Um, so, how, how has the production side in Europe done? I know we have industrial eurozone industrial production next week, but I guess we've already had some of those reports in, including Germany. Yeah, we've had, it's going to be interesting. I think it's a, it's a good, good, good issue to raise that one. I think because this the production side is going to be important because we mentioned it's, it's been lagging the recovery on the demand side. Um, Germany was disappointing. We saw a decline down 1.2% on the month for July. Um, that is the first of the pack. We'll get the French numbers and the Italian numbers on Thursday. But from you know, what's happened in Germany, it suggests again that this recovery, which has left so far the level of industrial output, is still a double digit short of where it was back in February time before the lockdown began. So there's a real risk that you know this thing's starting to peter out already. And I suppose it should be said that another sign of perhaps how concerned these policymakers are becoming is from the fiscal side. Where are we? A couple of weeks or so ago, we had the, uh, the German administration announcing a new multi-billion stimulus. Um, and last week, President Macron in France came out and really lifted lid off his pot. He's uh, introduced a new 100 billion euro recovery package, um, as we've seen, a, a, well, new COVID-19 cases in France are running at new record highs on a weekly basis and indeed a weekly basis as we record this. So I think there's very much genuine concerns about a policymakers that uh, you know, the, the rising trend we pretty well got right across Europe in terms of uh, coronavirus cases could start to have some kind of you know, dampening impact, impact on economic activity in just the same way as it did when it first emerged back in February and March time. Now all being well we're not talking about as big a second wave as we had in the first round but nonetheless you know, if we're if we're starting with a level of economic activity which is still well short of where it was before the coronavirus hit then the last thing uh, the policymakers want to see is a renewed downturn 
And um, the other point I think is worth mentioning on this, so we'll pass across to, to your side. Um, Hungary, um, this, you know, we talked before about this EU and uh, coronavirus rescue fund. Now, it's worth or it's supposed to be worth some 750 billion euros. And when they finally got agreements on this amongst the, the EU leaders, what, about a month or so ago now, it was seen as being a major plus point for the euro. It certainly helped the currency to, to make ground against the dollar. It also helped to lead to a sharp compression of bond spreads across uh, the region on the grounds that you know, those hardest hit likes Italy in particular would receive a disproportionate amount of um, aid coming out of these funds. But for this thing to be delivered, since we're talking EU here, we need all 27 member states to pass it through their national parliaments. And as things currently stand at the moment, um, Hungary is actually refusing to, to, to pass through the ratification. And it really comes down to quarrels with the EU over, well, from the, from the EU side, Hungary's lack of independence of the judiciary, media and uh, academics as well. So the, the current proposals really aim to tie access to these EU funds uh, to respecting well, bottom line, democratic principles. And of course, Hungary, because it started to drift in a different direction, is concerned that, well, you know, we're not we're going to have this if we can't access funds operating as we do at the moment. And the problem for the EU as a whole is they can't pass this thing unless they get a unanimous vote. Well, if I remember, Hungary was a problem uh, when they uh, made their initial agreement last month. But... Um they Your, swung around and agree. What has uh, changed uh, from uh, then and now? Well, it comes down to the details. I mean, you're right. Hungary was very much one of the proverbial stick in the muds when we had uh, the talks which rambled on for so long. The problem with the agreement was that it was the agreement in broad terms, so broad brushstrokes rather than getting down to some of the nitty gritty. And parts of the nitty gritty um, include on what grounds are these funds going to be allocated? And so this then takes us down to the, you know, the democratic principles. And this is what Hungary is refusing to do. So at this stage, um, I think outside of Hungary, the proposal still requires approval by a number of national parliaments. And of course, it still has to have approval by the European Parliament as well. So bottom line of all that little lot, as we've sort of talked about in the past, don't expect any big push or fiscal help coming out of the European Commission anytime soon back over to you mr ecb well uh, with all these delays and all these dates it and all these names it reminds me of brexit oh don't i think unfortunately it's time to re <laughs> it is time to revisit brexit as, as much as i don't want to talk about it we'll try and put this in a nutshell and i must say this is kind of breaking news at the moment over here and we're not quite sure what's going to happen out of this right Kicking off then, the easy bit is that the eighth round of talks, um, so between the EU and the UK, about securing some kind of trade agreement between uh, the two areas, um, kicked off again, kicked off this week. So this this is the eighth round, having to all intents and purposes achieved remarkably little in the previous seven. And this really is seen as crucial timing in the sense that both sides appear to be regarding October as the latest possible time to agree a deal if it's to be ratified by both parliaments by the end of this year, which is when the current transition period, which essentially still links the UK to the EU, even though we're not officially part of it, when that expires. Indeed, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, is, has talked about October the 15th as being a bottom line deadline. However, 
complicating matters if they weren't complicated enough. The UK tomorrow is expected to publish some new legislation, the so-called Internal Market Bill, and this will override potentially some parts of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, which was signed into law, I'm sure people, folks remember, when this Brexit deal actually went through. Now, this really just risks a collapse of all the trade negotiations with Brussels. With Brussels. In particular, sections of this agreement are expected to eliminate some of the legal force of parts of the withdrawal agreement, the whole thing, the whole treaty between the UK and the European Union. And it's going to include things like state aid and, crucially, Northern Ireland customs. Now, the new law assuming it goes through, would remove the requirement for the UK to check goods crossing from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Now, this is would replace the hard-fought replacement for this notorious Northern Ireland backstop that we used to talk about. And it'd be a customs which is a customs obligation aimed at preventing return to a hard border between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and many fear that if this thing is disappears down a plug hole, as the UK government appears to be proposing, then you know, what's going to happen? The EU aren't at all happy about this because essentially it means that if they withdraw these checks on goods coming out of the UK going into Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland doesn't have a land border with Southern Ireland, even though it's not part of the EU, then really the UK side becomes then an automatic channel for countries just to, to sell stuff into the European Union market without any kind of checks. Now, as, as I understand it, this thing, this proposal from the UK government, because it unwinds some of the Brexit deal, which is in law, actually breaks international law. So it's not quite clear what's going to happen out of this. Well, well, I is, can't it, say is it a negotiating move? Well, something I, I, withdraw? I assume it has to be. I assume this really is, you know, really pushing things you know, right down to the fine line. But it's an extremely dangerous move because at a time when, you know, ideally both sides want to have some kind of trust in, you know, in the other side, you know, coming out with something like this, which means to all intents and purposes, yes, we'll sign it and put it into law. But, oh, by the way, we might try to change it all later. It's hardly the best negotiating position. And it's got to be said, the head of the UK government's legal department, Jonathan Jones, um, he quit over this issue earlier on today and I think that's something like the fifth or the sixth major um, UK parliamentary representative part as, as a part of his Brexit post process who's decided to do the same thing. How's the pound doing? The pound's struggling. I mean, to be honest, it could have come off a lot more. But say, in terms of um, you know looking at sterling euro, the kind of the bellwether we look at for um, see how the pound's doing. Indeed, the euro. We're currently trading what 1.105. Um, so it's it's not down as low as it could be. But if you remember, it wasn't that long ago the pound was trading up around what 115, 116 or so to the euro. So it is being undercut now, and it's going to be interesting because there has been some talk about a possible Bank of England um, easing next week at the next Bank of England meeting. Um, so the bank were to come out against this backdrop of all this Brexit uncertainty, the pound could be in for a really rough ride. So it's going to be very much a case of watch this space, as they say. Okay, um, all right, that's a bit on Europe then. So, Mark, you had a nice employment report last Friday. So what's that going to do for the Fed next week? Uh, yes, well, the Fed uh, does have its um, September meeting um, next week. Uh, I don't think that there's uh, much chance that they're going to do anything. They just had to remember their Jackson Hole um, festivities, which really – 
updated everyone on their um, monetary policy, which is, you know, a, a maximum accommodation for as uh, uh, as long as necessary and uh, rates basically uh, as low as they're going to be and quantitative easing as uh, much as they need. Um I think the gist of the employment report last week, this was for the month of August, was a little weaker than expected. Um, it came below uh, Akanade's consensus, especially when excluding government um, payrolls. It's We knew that the 2020 uh, census was hiring, but it still seemed to have been a bit of a phantom for the forecasters. And... Um, uh, and, and it contributed to a, a 300,000 increase roughly in government jobs, which lifted everything. If you exclude that and we look at private payrolls, um, it, uh, they grew about 1 million and the consensus was about 1.4, a little less than that. And the prior, importantly, was 1.5. So you see that there is a slowing increase in payroll growth. But at the same time, there was also good news last week in the initial jobless claims, which came in below 900,000 for their lowest uh, weekly showing so far of the crisis. And but that's still a lot of jobs. So, but there's a lot of churning in the uh, in the labor market. It's still not clear how the subsistence level jobs are going to uh, pan out here in any kind of a, a uh, what emerges. What the the new labor market that emerges is is still a little bit uh, uncertain. So, um, but uh, there is definitely progress. But whether or not that's going to correspond to the kind of growth that uh, policymakers want and and the stock market, for instance, had been uh, 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 pricing in. It's unclear. You know, you had mentioned earlier about the stability of the financial markets. And I think that's probably true in, in the bond markets and, and the currency markets, but not so much in the U.S. stock market. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it, it, it fell apart on Yeah, Thursday, also not you, to be honest, but yeah. Well, you know, you, and um, the ECB meeting on Thursday, it's Monday. I, I, what's the last? Okay, so we, we lost 5% on the NASDAQ on Thursday. I think it was like 2% on Friday. And right now we're down another 2%. And uh, it wasn't too long ago, you know, at the beginning of this crisis, when this market, you know, could co completely fall apart just to a shocking degree. Not that that there's any you know significant risk of that but it it still is a few days to go before the ecb meet so uh well you know hopefully that won't be a factor but uh right now the there's a bit of a uh a, a vacuum here in the u.s stock market that uh, hopefully will um maybe we can rally through the rest of the session today monday or tuesday but um i, I guess we'll have to see um are there yeah. any expectations? So you're talking about the, the Jackson Hole stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any expectations of any additional details being offered next week? Well, so when we're talking about average inflation and what average inflation really means. <laughs> well, no, I I doubt it. I think they're going to stand by a very guarded, um, you know, a, a general uh, description that uh, they'll allow inflation to rise modestly, moderately. Uh, over their 2% goal for some kind of unspecified time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's it, you know, because inflation is still, um, you know, well below target, uh, that uh, it would be too soon for them to start breaking out any details, not even if they've even agreed to any details. I think that kind of uh, 
uh, specific, uh, you know, granularity isn't going to happen until you see the minutes of the meeting, maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, three weeks after the meeting. But mm-hmm. um, uh, so uh, I don't think it's going to be a very newsworthy or not newsworthy, but there won't be a lot of news coming from the event. Uh, and uh, unless, of course, there's a lot of developments that uh, have yet, you know, to unfold for us. It could, it could be the financial markets. It could be on COVID. Uh, it could be politics. But um yeah, yeah, can I ask you on that? Um, uh-huh. so speaking from this side of the water, I mean, is politics, um, obviously, there's an election, you know, well, not quite just around the corner, but not much more mm-hmm. than that these days. Yeah, Do you think yeah. it's having much of an impact on the way US financial markets are moving about? Um, I don't I, I don't really see a direct relationship. I don't think I've seen it really through this crisis. I think that... Um, Good days uh, for the administration uh, don't always mean good days for the stock market and vice versa uh, mm-hmm. or for um, or for Joe Biden. Um, I think that is probably, uh, oddly enough, kind of almost a, um, you know, uh, something that uh, has to get through <laughs> more than uh, any, um, uh, you know, concern, you know, over concern about the outcome. I think that. Um, I don't think that there's any, you know, uh, you know, self-evident uh, reaction uh, one way or another if the Democrats win or if the Republicans win. So, um, I, so I, I would, you know, venture to say that it's probably a kind of a neutral. But we'll see, of course, how that unfolds and how the the momentum goes. You know, the polls have been so wrong for so long that yeah. I'm not sure the poll numbers are, are affecting any anyone's opinions on anything. So um, I think it's, it's still two months away. But, you know, like you say, that is kind of right around the corner. So um, and how it plays, it'll be interesting to see. But I kind of think that, um, you know, the the fundamental recovery of the economy and COVID rates. Now, um, you know, here the COVID rates are down. Uh, now in Europe they're up and, uh, or at least parts of Europe they're up. And, um, uh, so w- 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 give us the latest on COVID. Well, COVID numbers, I suppose you've got to say pretty well across the board, um, as far as Europe's concerned are on the way up. Um, it's been a, you've got a, quite a disappointing time, I think really, as far as most of the, the policymakers have, have been concerned. And the, the, the principal areas of concern currently are Spain and France. Um, for Spain and indeed France, as of the last few days, we've seen record levels of daily cases being achieved. So in other words, we're back now above where we were in what late March, early April time when we had the first wave peaking. And it does seem to be, well, I suppose a classic, it's not a big surprise in the sense that clearly as you start to relax a lot of these lockdown restrictions as we've seen right across Europe there's inevitably going to be despite efforts at social distancing there's obviously going to create an environment which simply easier for the the COVID-19 to be passed from one person to another and that appears to be what's happening now and if you believe some of the uh, comments coming out from the scientists they also believe that quite simply yeah the general population has got too complacent about the low numbers which we had for most of Europe through what most of June and into a good chunk of July and it got to the stage whereby perhaps people almost dismissing well it doesn't really matter anymore and 
And the good news certainly is that the death rates, despite the pickup in the, uh, the new case numbers, uh, remain very low. And for most of Europe, still, the actual new case figures themselves uh, remain well short of what we saw you know, a few months ago during the, the first wave peak period. But nonetheless, it's, it's impacting financial markets because the pickup we've seen, say, particularly in France and Spain over the last week or two weeks, is starting to have implications for you know how investors perceive what's going to come out of ECB policy so I don't think there isn't an expectation I think that the ECB will do anything um, as far as the upcoming meeting is concerned but nonetheless there is this you know niggling feeling well look if these numbers keep rising then the implications are weaker demand weaker growth you know what are they going to do about it so they'll probably have to come out and do something and if the fiscal policy makers at least EU Commission can't get their package through it's ECB time again so I think certainly you know, the latest um, health developments, let's call them, across Europe are having at least some implications as far as the financial markets are trading. Are they affecting demand and supply at all? Um, well, it's, it's hard to say, to be honest. I think looking at you know, the, most of the information, I think, with regards to certain supply chains, we tend to get out of like of the PMIs and other surveys. And they've continued to be disrupted ever since COVID first arrived. Now, I suppose if you look at some of the, you know, the lengthening in vendor delivery times, hasn't been quite as bad as it had been. You know, recently, it hasn't been as bad as it has been um, previously. But it's it's you know, it's it's still a it's taking there's still disruptions to global supply chains which may mean that um, at some point presumably there'll be some additional upward pressure on input prices but so long as we got the weak levels of demand then it's very hard for producers to raise prices and that's of course one of the real mm-hmm. reasons why we've got inflation as soft as we have uh, across Europe at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually on that note let's uh, look uh, at the Econo Day calendar here in the upcoming week and um Let's get the latest on the uh, Canada's CPI, U.S. CPI consensus. And uh, in general, uh, we were looking for, it's a 0.3 for the core and a 1.6 rate, uh, a monthly 0.3 for the core and an annual 1.6 rate uh, for the core. That would be unchanged at 1.6. This runs several uh, percentage, uh, uh, the tenths higher than um, the PCE core, uh, so um, a 1.6 isn't that much progress. Um, so it looks to be flat. I guess we're going to get some oil effects. Um, but uh, inflation uh, isn't quite back in the news yet, but it does appear, at least in the, in the U.S., to have hit bottom and, and seems to be uh, coming up in most of the readings, um, which is a segue to, for the uh, average inflation. Uh, that'll offer a question opportunity for um, Jerome Powell. He can say, "Well, inflation's moving up. Does it, what does that do for your average inflation targeting?" And then he'll he'll dodge that. He'll dodge that one as well. Okie dokie. Oh, must mention oil on central banks. Uh, Bank of Canada. Uh, they kick off this week tomorrow, so they'll be coming out. And as we just touched on last week, Canadian economy uh, are actually doing pretty well. Is actually doing pretty well at the moment. It probably seems to be recovering from COVID as fast as any. They've got the good news that the uh, the COVID new cases in Canada are actually still very low too. Their employment report for August, which came out last week, what that showed, if I remember rightly, almost 246,000 increase in employment. That was after over 400,000 previously. Unemployment rate 10.2 still high but coming down quite nicely so i think 
very much expectations as far as Canada's concerned that we won't see any change out of them uh, tomorrow. And indeed, I think, you know, looking at market pricing, it seems as if interest rates are expected to be left on hold for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So that's the key overnight rate at 0.25%. Okay, then. Um, Any else from your side? No, I guess that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's reasonable. Don't have been prattling on for too long today. So let's call it a week. Um, from Mark and myself, thanks, as always, for listening. We'll be back next week. But before then, do remember to keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.